In the first podcast of the year, Professor the Honourable Bob Carr and I reflect on the lessons in reform leadership that emerged from his time as former Premier of New South Wales and as a former Australian Foreign Minister. We also consider the reform tradition of the Australian Labor Party, the nature and reach of historical study, the ongoing follies of human beings, and the statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln and Franklin D. Roosevelt. Welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast, everyone, and Happy New Year. Uh, this is the first podcast of 2022. It's my really great honour today to be speaking with the Honourable Bob Carr. He's Industry Professor of Business and Climate Change at UTS. He was the former Foreign Minister of Australia from 2012 to 2013 under the Gillard government. And he was also New South Wales' longest continuously serving Premier of, uh, of the state. He's also a writer and a thinker and a lover of history, a constant learning uh, has been his passion for history and statesmanship. He's written several books from Thought Lines to What Australia Means to Me to My Reading Life, Diary of a Foreign Minister, and Run for Your Life. Welcome, Professor. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, what, what a pleasure for me to be talking about books and ideas and uh, the political record. Wonderful. Um, well, we're going to speak about a few things today, as you just mentioned, but it's all going to be about this theme of reform leadership. Uh, you are a unique figure who has both been a person in public life who has achieved significant reforms, but also a thinker about reform, which should make this conversation quite an interesting one. But to start as a kind of, you know, broad-based thematic jump in, um, it's very clear from reading your, your writings that you had the political vocation from a very young age. I was wondering, Professor, if you could speak to why you chose politics as your vocation and what the place of thinking about reform was that in that choice? I think given my age, it was the appeal of the romantic tradition of, of laborism in Australia. So I was exposed to, to uh, this idolatry of Ben Chifley mm. and uh, from, from my father and from uh, my uncle. And I found it very persuasive. And even at 15, uh, dipped into Finn Crisp's biography of Ben Chifley. Mm. Um, so if you're thinking of what a labour-inclined working-class family might have believed as part of its political ethos in the early 60s Australia, late 50s, early 60s Australia, uh, that's what I was absorbing. That's what I was absorbing. And out of that came an idealistic notion of making a career mm. um, in politics, labour politics. It's an interesting idea, this notion of the romantic tradition of the of Australian labourism, because if one thinks of the Labour Party and its history too, it's this kind of constant tension between more revolutionary elements and more reformist ones. What's your relationship to the kind of reform tradition of the ALP in which people like Chifley Whitlam are situated, and what do you think are its key hallmarks? Yeah, well, I identify with it completely. Um, and the Chifley, the Curtin Chifley commitment to post war reconstruction was, had many themes in it, had, had a number of distinct themes in it. One of it was economic modernization, that mm. Australia should have a properly uh, empowered central bank for example. Um, 
the notion that the national government should set a goal of full employment for the Australian economy after the decade-long Great Depression, that was, that was bold and reformist. <coughs> the, the, the focus on... Um, the focus on developing a manufacturing sector um, captured another theme, which is, is nation building. Mm. And I think if you mounted a critique of the Chifley government, it's that there, was too, there were too many class references in its self-defining rhetoric, whereas if it had wanted to hold on to middle-class support, the support of swinging voters as it approached the 1949 election, so crucial in so many ways, building up <coughs> the nation-building references, mm. establishing TAA, establishing Qantas, um, Snowy Mountain Scheme, the immigration program, would have been <coughs> a way of reaching out far more politically effective than... than the, 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 the references that seemed to trap chiefly, which was to industrial matters and the working class movement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because there, there was a line in Thought Lines that struck me um, that you wrote, <laughs> in which you write that the Labour Party, I quote, is the party of movement in Australian politics and that its historical rule creates for Labour politicians a duty to incorporate in the party's life and programs the reformist instincts in our society, close quote. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the past five years that Australia and the Australian population is an inherently conservative one. That is that we are, for the most part, resistant to the idea of change. What's the relationship of the ALP today, but also historically, to making the electorate, the population, comfortable with the notion of change, seeing it as an instinct that the people are capable of having? Um, I, I'm struck more and more by how any generalisation about the electorate Mm. is going to be wrong. Mm. Um, you, you, you saw that uncommonly useful Four Corners program based around what we call a focus group of softly committed voters expressing their, their views. Um, and the more you're exposed <coughs> to that kind of exploration mm. of, what, of what such voters think, the more you see that at one time they're open to reform, they want a bit of boldness, but there is also an element of trepidation. So the challenge for, for political leadership is to pull off the great transformation that Hawke and Keating delivered, that is bold reforms but sold in a reassuring fashion so that people who didn't understand the floating of the currency um, could accept that Hawke and Keating were doing things that Australia had to do. And, and a leader like John Button going down and speaking directly to the workers in clothing, textiles, footwear and saying we can't continue the level of protection mm. uh, through tariffs that you've grown used to. I've seen it in a state Labor government, Neville Rand state Labor government, Jack Ferguson, a, a left 
left-wing deputy premier going up to face the workers in the state dockyard in Newcastle and saying we cannot continue to run this as a hugely subsidised state-owned operation. Um, so there are models mm. for leading public opinion, but you'd want to do so after exploring the language. I know politicians get criticised for being, being influenced by, by polling, for being too dependent on polling. I'm thinking of using polling in a different sense. I want to, I want to, I want to pursue some bold reforms, mm. but I want to know what arguments work and what are going to be wasted words or even worse, counterproductive. Mm. And to, to use focus groups to feel your way forward is not a bad thing. Mm. Where does the tension then lie between <laughs> leading people and challenging people and at the same time bringing them with you? Because this is a really interesting tension. You know, you mentioned the Hawke and Keating years. I think a significant part of that was that this message that change was necessary to actually adapt to changing times, that change was coming as it was, and that it was necessary for leadership to reform in order to bring people into the future and face that change in a way that would benefit their lives. Is what, how have you reflected on this tension yourself as a political leader between sometimes making a judgment, going out on a limb, having to test people out in a new way that they're not used to and bringing them with you? Is it something that you struggle with? Um, a lot of it can be opportunistic. Yeah. Feeling, feeling for opportunities. So I, I tell the story in my book, Run for Your Life, about police reform in New South Wales. It, it turned mm. out to be a big thematic reform under my government. Um, and it was quite a good way of making public policy. A royal commission was rolling out recommendations to systemically remove systemic corruption from the New South Wales police force. And we as a cabinet and a parliament <clears throat> were taking up their recommendations, one after the other. Mm. There's there some we could actually embrace with alacrity. So even before the Royal Commission had served up its first recommendations, there were revelations about police getting payoffs uh, from brothels. And I went into a Labor caucus meeting and I said, well, look, it's time to fix this up. Um, I'm going to seek your support for legislation that we'll, we'll present as a cabinet, but I want your support for the notion of legislation that will, will decriminalise brothels to eliminate a source of police corruption and achieve better protection um, for, the, for, for the sex workers um, anchored in the industry. Yes. Um, I, got, I got support and I then told the cabinet secretary that we, I wanted a draft. Um, so that was, that was an opportunity for an <clears throat> overdue reform generated by the headlines coming out of the Royal Commission. Yeah. But then we got served up to us in, in great chunks recommendations for, for example, having compulsory drug and alcohol testing for police on the job. Now, if, if, I'd, if we'd served that up, without the context of a Royal Commission, it would have been hugely controversial. Mm, mm. But we had, we had a police force that was largely non-performing because of long lunches. Because of an ethos that said, um, drinking is part of the job. Well, we ended that. Um, we, we, we 
another bold reform under this rubric is integrity testing. We accepted the principle of integrity testing, which meant we meant which meant that the Police Integrity Commission could plant a plastic bag with white powder or a bundle of cash in an abandoned vehicle, for example, and then secretly tape <clears throat> what the response of the, the police discovering this cash would, would do with it. Mm. Um, so that, that could not, that, that would have been a very bold measure. It would have been fiercely resisted as, as, as being uh, based on uh, a system of, uh, suitable for a provocateur uh, not a not a, a government. Yes. Uh, but we were able to present that in the context of a Royal Commission. So the Royal Commission was a great opportunity to do things that were bold, beyond the normal reach of the state political agenda, mm. um, provocative to the police union and perhaps to a lot of the tabloid media that run with the police. But but we could go for it and go for it strongly because of the daily revelations filling the papers. And, and to go back a step, we got the Royal Commission because of an opportunity. Again, opp the opportunism that, that, that opens up uh, a portal to reform. Um, John Hatton, an independent member of the House, was nagging about a police Royal Commission. He didn't present enough evidence to me, but I ended up being persuaded mm. as we were approaching the, the 1995 election that the police were performing badly so whether it was systemic corruption or not, they were an underperforming force. And I, I persuaded the, the, the shadow cabinet and then the caucus to fall in behind Haddon's motion and go with a royal commission. There was some grumbling, some hint that we would lose the votes of the 10,000 members of the police association. Yes. But I was drawn to the idea of finally having a comprehensive cleanup, a purge of policing in New South Wales and I thought, if, I, if I'm going to win the next state election, then I will inherit a working Royal Commission into policing. It's really interesting because I know that you're, you know, a great student of Lincoln who we'll talk about a bit later. But this is what he means when he says that events give you opportunities, essentially, that events shape a politician's life and choices. Um, because without the pressure of that Royal Commission, without the sense of urgency, that it created, the boldness of those reforms, as you said, probably could not have gotten through. So it's interesting to see reform as something also in reaction to events that's made possible by events changing. In your run for your life, you also mentioned, Professor, that, you know, police reform was not a reform without resistance. Um, you mentioned the police unions also in the book, potential resistance that had come from within your caucus and also from Talkback Radio. This was a really strange array of resistance. I mean, very different interest groups were pushing back against this. How did you approach that as a leader? How did you cut through these different forms of resistance to get these reforms through? We had appointed a police commissioner, Peter Ryan, who was very popular, certainly for the start yeah. of his term. He said, <clears throat> he said to the Royal Commission, unless I've got the power to sack someone I haven't confidence in, I can't give you a cleaned up police force. Mm. The Royal Commissioner recommended this reform to create commissioner's confidence. Commissioner's confidence. If the commissioner has lost confidence, he can sack someone. This contradicted the trade union notion and the Labor Party principle of opposition to unfair dismissal. 
we're effectively seeking to suspend the principle of unfair dismissal in, in industrial law in respect of police. <coughs> um, and there was a level of opposition in the, in the caucus. And if I remember correctly, industrial action by the police who were gathered in the Sydney domain protesting about this. It was a, it was a, a valid argument. Mm. Um, I decided that our, our reforms needed the credibility of us taking a firm stand. And I remember the Herald in an editorial said that the day after I prevailed in the face of caucus opposition, if, if Premier Carr had been defeated on this, um, it would have been a serious blow to his reform agenda. Mm. That was the hardest part of that reform package because it ran up against um, an important trade union notion. Mm. And I guess that it's a part of that is how did you reconcile that yourself? Well, I just I just had to say um, we're engaged in a big task. Um, this is only going to prevail in one can assume a small number of cases. Um, but if I got the Royal Commissioner, a, ju a judge, yes. and the Police Commissioner telling me we need this, yes. then let's implement it. And I could have used the argument. I don't think I did, but I could have used the argument. Look, this turns out to be a source of great industrial grievance. We can revisit it. Yes. But, but um, applying to such a, a small number of cases in the context of all the rev revelations about systemic corruption, hmm. um, I had to prevail and did. Absolutely, yeah. And maybe if we move then to another difficult reform, but a highly successful one um, of your, from your time as Premier, um, your introduction of medically supervised injection rooms in King's Cross in 2001. Um, it's, it's really interesting because in a previous diary entry before you passed um, that reform, you had written that you had changed your mind about this idea in part because of events. Um, what, what were the events that led you to seeing this as a policy that you could support? Um, and what changed your mind around introducing medically supervised injection rooms? I think, I think um, the proponents made the case that this was not in the category of a heroin trial, which the Chief Minister of the ACT, uh, Kate Carnell, had been promoting. Mm. Um, it was very modest in its scale, um, very specific. It was a, a compromise, but a compromise that would keep people alive until they could be persuaded to stop experimenting with heroin. Um, I, think, I think it was the, the pressure of a one-week summit on drug law reform that made me focus on it. Mm. Um, and I had two ministers, Craig Knowles and John Delabosca, embrace the notion and put it to me. I, I tweaked it in a way that protect us, protected us from any hint that we were using the King's Cross trial as the first step towards trials in other locations. I said, we'd only do this where the local community asked us to. And in that shape, I, with a lot of reservation and feeling as I said in my diary, somewhat queasy, mm. I was prepared to give it a go. I think my reservations meant that I was, I was credible when I said to the public, as I did in, in a, a, an important 7.30 program 
interview that on balance it's something we should look at. Mm. Um, uh, the public didn't think I was a wild-eyed or gullible or naive reformer, and this was the first step towards a heroin trial or wholesale decriminalisation. It's really interesting because I think it was in that same 7.30 report, or at least within that, around that same time period, that you said politics often presents a choice between the unpalatable and the disastrous. Mm. Um, what did such a reform, one that would potentially be controversial in the community's eyes, what did it teach you about the nature of democratic politics and decision-making? Because it seems like the lesson inherent here is that nothing is ever clean. There's always this kind of grey area which reforms occupy. Would you agree with that? I think so. And um, what it taught me was that if you completely, if you, you competently enunciate mm. um, what you're doing and what you're not doing, the public are capable of following you. And I was persuaded after the interviews I did, even where I was, I was, I was made to be a bit defensive, <coughs> talking on conservative radio, for example, that, that an ordinary listener would say, no, Bob's not saying that. Yeah. What Bob's proposing is this. They understood the distinctions uh, I was making. That's very interesting. If we then move to a kind of third category of reform from your time as Premier, um, I mean, your nation and world-leading efforts on climate change and conservation um, were really kind of a big deal, especially being introduced in the early 2000s. Um, I believe that you created in a, line, a landmark series of decisions, 350 new national parks. You put a reform of the whole forestry system through um, against immense resistance. Um, and you also introduced the world's first carbon trading scheme in 2003. What was your thinking about reform on a kind of mass long-term scale about conservation and climate action during your time as Premier? We were making land use decisions in declaring those, the bulk of those national parks that were going to settle disputes about the boundaries between forestry activity and conservation, the conservation domain <coughs> in all of New South Wales east of the Great Dividing Range. So the <coughs> very important land use decisions <coughs> for the East Coast, um, the, the final land use decisions for the East Coast. Um, so it was quite, it was quite, quite a substantial uh, reform to say new way of assessing conservation value. And we're no longer going to do this on a case by case basis relying on conservationists to, to sit down on forestry, forestry roads and block bulldozing. Um, um, we're going to roll this out on a, a planned and scientific basis and we will close some mills um, and we will subsidise the workers who lose their jobs in those mills. We'll close the mills that aren't sustainable the workforce and the ownership knows haven't got a future. And that will free up supply and we can guarantee supply of commercial timber to mills that are sustainable and secure, secure the jobs based on those mills. Uh, and that's what we did. In the end, in the end, remarkably, we had the support of conservationists 
and of the timber industry. Right. They were saying, the industry was saying, you're given a security of supply. We know where we stand. That, that, that even applied to big uh, commercial entities like Boral with investments on the North Coast. And others were saying, workers were saying, no, I, I wanted to leave the industry. I knew the job wasn't secure. Mm. This public sector level um, superannuation, this redundancy payment is really equivalent to, pub, to public sector superannuation. And I'm happy to have this retirement. That, 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 that enabled a great gift to future generations yeah. of Australians, um, saving Tantawangalo and Coolangubra on the south coast and the rainforest pockets that had not yet been protected on the north coast. I remember one day signing a piece of paper that, that created 100 new national parks between um, uh, Bega and, 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 if I remember correctly, um, um, the Jarvis Bay and, uh, and the Eden Valley. Um, I, think, I think I've got that correct. Um, and on top of what we've done on the far south coast, um, this really was a great gift. Um, we made the first step towards pricing carbon. I often think that, that mm. the New South Wales G-Gas scheme that was introduced in January 2003, even before the European Emissions Trading Scheme, might have been used as a model uh, when Kevin Rudd came to government in 2007 as a, 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 an incrementalist approach towards yes. the great challenge of pricing carbon. And if it had, I guess, you know, did that encounter resistance when you put through that, that carbon pricing scheme? No, it was just such a, a subtle tweaking yeah. of, of how the uh, electricity di distributors operate um, that we we got away with it. Um, so it really was a good example of incrementalism. Yes. Um, the, we were increasing the price of electricity, but it, so gradually that it was no impact on households, no noticeable impact. But it did send a strong message to the sector mm. that this was happening and increased the competitive appeal of renewables. You might have contemplated a situation where a federal government did the same thing mm. and added industries to the list mm. uh, on a year-by-year -year basis, giving them time to make adjustment. It's a shame we've missed out on that opportunity, isn't it? Because I think another thing that I wanted to notice, note about the strategic political context at the time was that, you know, your state government at least as far as I know, the history was the one to be taking this front step, um, even more so than the federal government at the time, um, or even more so than the Hawke government had done before. Um, what about climate change even then in the early 2000s made you know that this was a commitment that your government would stand on that you would not buckle on? Um, you know, early 2000s was not 2022. The debate wasn't the same now as it was then. Um, what, what made this stand out for you as a commitment? I just read the literature. I read yeah. um, Bill McKibben's book from the early 90s. Um, I, uh, I was following what, what was happening in the international debate. And the radical nature <clears throat> of human-driven change in climate really captured my imagination. Hmm. Um, as I heard someone say, look, this is either, this is either true 
And it's a huge threat to humanity, or it's the greatest con ever in human history. Um, and the scientists were saying, no, this is happening. There's been a buildup of heat trapping gases in the upper atmosphere. It's producing consequences, and they're going to get more severe. Um, the science seemed to me as a non-scientist altogether um, credible, mm. um, painstakingly put together, and could not be ignored. As a result, I'd look, I'd look say, 2000 or so, I'd look at a, a newspaper, that, that an international paper that might have a story about the loss of Arctic sea ice on page 24. Mm. And some story relatively trivial about interest rate movements or a royal scandal on the, the front page. And I just thought of how challenging it is for people to start wrapping their consciousness around the idea we are changing the conditions under which we live on this planet. Yes, yes. Well, it's, it was a really significant achievement and quite a, and a, and a, um, an honourable thing to see and witness and read about now. Particularly the big in the battle, by, the really big battle was on restraining farmers from broadacre land clearing. There was yes. a high level of resistance. Um, it, it was a bold thing to do. And our success at that and what Peter Beattie did following our lead in Queensland was the reason the Howard government was able to get credit for, for achieving our Kyoto goals. It was the action of two state labor. <laughs> That's, yeah, right, of course. In restricting farmers from broadacre land clearing yes. that, according to the methodology, got Australia the credit. And that was the clause inserted last minute, was it not? Uh, at Kyoto or something like it that. Thinking. Yeah, but I believe it was something like that. That's very interesting. If we, um, if we take a sidestep, Professor, we move into a different topic, though related, history and your, your love of history as a reader of history and as a student of history. It's, it's very interesting to me um, that someone like you who has been a reformer um, <coughs> seeks lessons in history and not in something like philosophy or political theory or, you know, some abstract way of thinking. What is, it, is it, what is it about your relationship with history and the discipline itself um, that continues to draw you to it as a source of wisdom for practical action? I, th I think it, it's, it's the, the concreteness of yeah. history. Uh, history is a string of case studies. So if you're a practitioner in politics or journalism for that matter, um, you're faced with the challenge of how the flawed human beings might have handled this differently, especially at those hinge moments. Um, the British cabinet in July, August, 1914, mm. um, the Austrian foreign ministry, uh, the Kaiser going off on a summer cruise. How, how might they have handled Austria's demands served on the kingdom of Serbia in a way that avoided and didn't render inevitable the, the collapse into crisis that brought on the horrors of World War I. Mm. Um, so that will be, I mean, that will, will dominate our thinking. Um, you know, for those, those who want to know how bad it can get, mm. um, how people can make yeah, Barbara Tuchman spoke about 
uh, the folly, how people can make, serious people, educated people, can make absolutely ruinous decisions. How did the royal houses of Europe make decisions that it could be foreseen were going to destroy their monarchies, their empires, their kingdoms? Um, and how did, how did the, the best and the brightest in America make those commitments to a war in Vietnam hmm. that resulted after those huge losses sustained by America um, in the capitulation, Saigon, April 1975. Mm. Um, the folly that humans are capable of should eliminate any numb, any, any gullible notion, any gullible notion that, that uh, nuclear war cannot come about or that we, we, we might go on neglecting the required action on climate until catastrophe embraces us. Um, so I, I, I think history confronts us with these profound questions in a way that the speculations of philosophy don't. Absolutely. Have you found hope in history too? Because, you know, there's that line that people often quote, I don't know who said it, but that, um, you know, the only thing that one learns from history is that we do not learn from history. Um, that we are always subject to the folly and variances of, of the human condition. Do you draw inspiration and hope from how people in the past have dealt with and grappled with their challenges too? You can from the, the, the manifestations of, of statesmanship. Yes. The, uh, the post-war reconstructions that went on um, in Japan, mm. in Germany, uh, Franco-German reconciliation, after 1945, who would have thought that after the, the, the atrocities, the SS and the Gestapo, uh, the conventional Wehrmacht had, had inflicted on the people of France, there'd be the, 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 the majority opinion in, in France and the opinion of, the opinion of its leadership mm. in the 1950s would be, we must avoid this. We must find a way of making a peace Maybe Germany was required to suffer so profoundly for its people and leadership um, leached of any uh, nationalist resentments to say um, peace, diplomacy and democracy are the way forward for us, not the, uh, the, the romantic dreams and the, 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 the cruel nationalism uh, and, and, and all-embracing racism. Mm. these disasters on us. It's, it's a very interesting thing too, because I read my reading life before this conversation and um, I was struck by the, there does seem to be a theme throughout your reading, right? Which is this kind of tension between totalitarianism and what the conditions are that allow us to descend into it. And this kind of appeal against it to human decency, you know, and that, and that stretches from your reading of Isaiah Berlin to, um, you know, Ian Kershaw on Hitler, a dual biography that I, you know, return to again and again, and also then a thinker and a writer like Primo Levi in If This Is a Man. Um, what do you think that history has to teach us about human decency? Do you have faith that there are ways we can recover from the horrible things that we do do to each other that is not within statesmanship, but more in the kind of ordinary day-to-day -day way that we treat each other as we see in Primo Levi's book? Um, 
And as, as we, we, we sit on the brink of a, a, a new European war over boundaries, yes. um, and we witness the suffering in Myanmar and Afghanistan, I think, I think any optimism is, is seriously shaken. Mm. When America says we're keeping half of Afghanistan's reserves, we're going to spend them on um, families that suffered September 11 while there are kids dying in Afghanistan's hospitals, mm. um, you've got to wonder whether we are any different from the British ruling class that was told there was a shocking famine in Ireland and did not intervene to see that ships laden with grain would be diverted to Irish ports. Mm. Um, there's the sheer difficulty about intervention, of course. Um, in Myanmar, civilians being shot, civilians being used as human shields, a military regime that does not care about international opinion. Mm. We lose our capacity for intervention. There's just no way of pulling it off, as, as there wasn't faced with Assad's uh, horrific years of the, the Syrian civil war. Um, So what's, what's changed since the Irish famine and what we're about to see unfold in Afghanistan? Um, and how do you persuade uh, people who hold state power to temper with mercy and restraint The, uh, the options they've got, they enjoy because of their considerable power. Now, these, these are the, the, endless, the endless challenges in America's founding fathers debated. Um, that generation debated these very things, how America uses its, its power, doesn't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. What happens if you separate power from remorse, mm. um, these, these sometimes grotesque dramas are, are acted out in our world all the time. Mm. Was, it a, was it Shakespeare who had, I believe it was Brutus say, uh, the abuse of powers when it disjoins remorse from power? Yes, um, and that's echoed in the quote I was groping for from... Yeah. John Quincy Adams or another American, another <clears throat> um, first or second generation American leader. Yes. But uh, yes, <clears throat> that quote reflects Shakespeare's brilliant insights into power, um, woven through all his history, history plays and some of his uh, tragedies. Yes, and, and let's turn to a lover then of Shakespeare. You mentioned the US presidential <laughs> tradition. Um, you know, we'd love to, I'd love to speak about both Lincoln and FDR as kind of model reformers from whom we can take reform lessons and leadership. But if we think with, sit with Lincoln for a moment, um, I believe that Lincoln, it's really interesting. There's that 
that story of Lincoln writing a letter to a then major author of, 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 of a series of criticisms on Shakespeare, saying that he loved and revered Macbeth um, over the play Hamlet. And, you know, he was particularly interested in Act One, Scene Three, in which Macbeth reflects on ambition, you know, this vaulting ambition which overleaps itself and falls on the other. I think that what Lincoln was recognising in himself was the tendency for remorse to <laughs> sometimes, um, you know, walk away from power in his own political life and trajectory. What was the crisis that Lincoln faced when he became president? Um, what was the crisis of the union that he faced? And what were the challenges that he had to deal with as a reformer in face of it? Maybe if we can start there so we can bring people with us to reflect on some of the lessons that emerged from how he responded to it. He faced the dissolution of the Union because at the time of his inauguration in March uh, 1861, mm. both sides were sick of compromises. Neither side could contemplate another compromise on the awful issue of slavery. The South had reached the position that slavery was under threat and the the John Brown raid um, was a symbol of Northern intervention to liberate their slaves, to, to take their slave wealth from them and to leave them prone to, to um, symbolised that. For the North, the Dred Scott decision of 1857 mm. was only the prelude to other decisions that would be forthcoming from a Supreme Court in the grip of the slave power. They thought the next Dred Scott decision will be a decision from the court that reinstates slavery, reinstates slavery in northern states where it had been abolished. Mm. So both sides at the time of the political conventions of 1860 were, were contemplating no further compromise and the notion of the inevitability of war had taken mm. hold. I think the evidence suggests, especially in the South. It's, it's an interesting point because when you speak to people about Lincoln today, they think of him as this kind of grand abolitionist. So someone who from the get-go was trying to get rid of slavery altogether, but we know that's actually not the case at all, um, that Lincoln was dealing with this state and field of compromise in which he was essentially a gradualist about the question of emancipation. If I can just read a quote from Lincoln that you raise in my reading life for us to reflect on. Um, Lincoln says, I quote, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the union and it is not to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that, close quote. What do you think, Professor, that Lincoln's relationship personally was to slavery? You know, he says things like, if slavery isn't wrong, nothing is wrong so as I would refuse to be a slave, so as I would refuse to be a master, right? So at a moral level, it seems like he has a distaste for it, but that's not how he expresses himself in his politics. Why does he reach for gradualism on this question? He arrived at, at one key policy commitment, 
to block the westward expansion of slavery. Yeah. And <laughs> he believed that that would put slavery on the path to inevitable dissolution. Mm. Um, and so he was absolutely a gradualist. Mm. That's, that's the reason he appealed to the party. They thought he was a less divisive candidate than uh, people who were overt abolitionists like Seward and Salmon. Um, and he made that very explicit in reaching out to the South uh, in 1861, offering legislation that um, confirmed the position, the legality of slavery in states mm. where it then existed. It was the, the tug and tide of war that took him to a position of, uh, of uh, overt abolitionism captured in the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but it was a matter of timing, so we can describe as crabwise mm. this, this sideways movement um, created by the radicalizing forces of the war, the, the shift in Northern opinion behind abolitionist instinct, um, and the opportunity for victory on the, the battlefield to make, to make it look a rallying cry and not an act of desperation. He was astute enough to know that. Yes, yeah, so it's, I guess the reform lesson is there is timeliness, isn't it? It's understanding yep. how events offer you the opportunity in a limited way to pursue an aim which you might hold personally. And I think that is the lesson of Lincoln. It's perhaps if we can just take a quiet sojourn with, with Gore Vidal's Lincoln. I know that we both share a passion for that novel mm. and that you are a friend uh, of, of, of Vidal's. Um, the novel is really interesting because it captures Lincoln's contradictions. So on the one hand, it portrays him as this kind of extremely astute, cunning uh, political master who is able to outmaneuver challenges that come to him from within his cabinet, um, from Salmon P. Chase and from Seward as well. But at the same time, it captures him as this gradualist. What do you think the lessons are arising from that novel into the character of a reformer? So what I mean by that is how Lincoln turned up day to day in the office and handled these challenges as a man. What do you think are the lessons the insights that emerge from Vidal's novel on that. I think I think uh, the readiness to make it up as you go along, yeah, uh, to grope and feel for opportunities, uh, to carefully assess public opinion mm. and where it was moving, um, to assert your own leadership even after infinite consultation is very dependent on Seward, of course. But early in the piece, he, he emphatically rejected Seward's cunning notion that Seward should be regarded as a prime minister um, and Lincoln should sacrifice his participation in day-to-day policymaking. Um, he had the confidence just to say no. <laughs> he was aware of the prerogatives of the presidency. Um, he, was, he was brutal, the abandonment of habeas corpus and... and Vidal, who does not like a strong federal government, mm. um, uh, is, is attentive to that. Um, he could see through 
the flaws of cabinet colleagues. Vidal devotes a lot to the, the tension with uh, Sam Duke Chase, who um, saw himself as an alternative for Lincoln in 1864. Um, but uh, Lincoln outplayed him as a master, a political master of, of cabinet politics. And yet, and yet his re-election hung in such doubt as those climactic battlefield events so slowly gathered force in the summer of 1864. It was almost unbearable to read again about <laughs> Grant's summer campaign, the shocking casualties day by day. Yeah. Um, the resistance that the South presented to what might have looked inevitable were rolling out of the superior Mm. Northern numbers um, until finally, at the last possible moments, mm. there, were, there were in quick succession three Northern victories that, that just rallied Northern opinion behind the, behind the president. So let, let's just test our memories. One, one was, the, um, <laughs> one, one was the, uh, the fall, not of, of Richmond, but was it Richmond? Uh, did Richmond mm. fall time or was it? Uh, Is this 1864? Yeah. I think so. Because um, I think that's also the passage in the Vidal novel where, um, is that the one where following Lincoln visits a hospice with Confederate soldiers? No, that's after. That, is, that, is that after Summit? After and Susan. Okay, right. Um, um, so there's the victory of the, the Southern Trust by Grant. No, sorry, it was the fall in Georgia, okay. not a part of Grant, but of his colleague, um, um, Sherman. Right. So it was the fall of Atlanta. Yes. So that was, great. that was a great victory on the, the Eastern Front. Um, then there was the victory in the Shenandoah Valley under mm. Sheridan, who just wiped it out. It was ruthless. Remember the expression... Um, um, not a crow will be able to fly down the valley without without carrying its own uh, its own supplies. Mm -hmm. And then there was the victory, the naval victory over Mobile at Mobile in Alabama, in Alabama. So those three victories were just, especially the fourth Atlanta, I guess, were just triumphs for the North, and they crushed McClellan's chance of a. Um, a democratic win, which would have delivered a negotiated peace with the South, retaining slavery um, in southern states, I guess. Yes. And so, and so <laughs> it's, it's, it's very clear that, I mean, Lincoln becomes extremely war-weary by the end. I mean, they're dealing with such casualty levels. Um, it's really a tragedy. One of the other final things that I think characterises Lincoln as a reformer is how he lays the ground for reconciliation, particularly in a speech like the Second Inaugural. He takes a really interesting move in that speech because he doesn't come out and, you know, run straight into victory. He speaks about it rather in a very matter-of-fact way. He's more interested instead for finding a way that the Northerners and Southerners can begin to live together after this is all over. Have you got any insights into what the reform leadership lessons, instincts are coming from that speech in what Lincoln's trying to do to get North and South to be able to work together again after it's all over? Well, he said... <clears throat> And I think it's a key quote. I want to let the South down 
gently. Right, yeah. So that would have governed his policies mm. and he may not have succeeded because it would have, it would have put him at conflict with radical Republicans in Congress who wanted a punitive approach, um, would he have had the authority, could he have sustained the authority to have had reconciliation applied under Reconstruction? Yeah. Um, it might have been too hard. It might have been too hard. Um, how, how could, it, it might have been too hard to have instituted civic equality between the races in the South immediately following the, uh, the constitutional ban on slavery. Mm. Um, so Reconstruction can be seen as the biggest failure in American domestic policy. Um, Lincoln's second term might have dissolved into argument um, and a loss of authority um, and a split in the Republican Party um, I think you can say this, he paid with his life for his commitment to reconciliation. Don't forget mm. that his assassin was there in the crowd hearing Lincoln's last speech mm. from the portico or the balcony of the White House, mm. um, making a commitment, among other things, to <coughs> the franchise for some categories of uh, some categories of black Americans, those who served in the armed forces or had an education. And um, that's when um, John Wilkes Booth said to his companion, he'll pay with his life for that speech. Vidal so wonderfully recreates um, in, in the novel. Yeah, if we, that was really interesting. If we can turn finally to then, you know, another key reformer at a moment in the, in the crisis of the union, FDR. I know that you have a bit of a special relationship with FDR um, as, as a student of his, of his time in office. The New Deal is a major event in social democracy worldwide, but particularly in the United States. Um, could you just give us some context, Professor, as to what the challenge was that FDR inherited and confronted during the Great Depression um, and what he had to do in terms of reform with the New Deal? The economy seemed to be in a spiral of decline and the banking institutions were wobbly. Mm. The one historian said <clears throat> the climate was one of such panic that if he'd wanted it, uh, the president might have got nationalisation of the American banks through the political system. It might have been uh, James McGregor Burns, the first biographer, who said that. Um, so this was the... This was the system that he took over. And the first lesson he provides is the cheerfulness um, mm. with which he embraced this. So different from the saturnine personality of, of Lincoln, you mm. might say, the sheer cheerfulness, irrepressible cheerfulness with which he embraced <clears throat> these challenges and the other thing that stands out is the contempt he had for America's ruling class, for its financial elite. And why shouldn't he? He'd had an elitist education at uh, Groton and at uh, Harvard. Um, he'd mixed, he'd seen something of these people. He, he came from the world of old money and agricultural wealth 
and investments. Um, he wasn't intimidated by them, but he, um, <coughs> he he despised them and was prepared to take them on. And he did in the rhetoric of the, his re-election campaign in, in 1936. Um, and of course, the theme, the great theme is bold, persistent experimentation. He didn't know how to get this right. Mm -hmm. There was no Keynesian theory textbook on his desk to guide him. Uh, he'd experiment, he'd experiment with anti-competitive, oligarchic economic models, banning competition because it was destructive for jobs and small business, restricting competition. Um, there are corporatist instincts. Um, and and uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in his big uh, multi-volume history of the New Deal talks about the different strands that this experimenting premier, uh, that president was prepared to play with. It's really interesting because I went away and read um, the first volume, actually, James McGregor's biography, The Lion and the Fox. Um, and the first thing you encounter is that he really is making it up as he goes along. Mm. Um, part of that, though, what is profound about that effort is that he's encountering major resistance <laughs> from both the left and the right on this. Um, what was his kind of tactic for, particularly as an executive, influencing, uh, you, I guess you could say, directing Congress to pass these New Deal reforms? What was his approach to not managing conference, but influencing it in Congress, but influencing it in such an effective way. How did he do that? Well, one thing you can say, and it's a challenge for, for contemporary opinion uh, and for reformers who admire FDR, mm. is that he had to maintain that coalition to support his reform program by not confronting the Dixiecrats, the segregationists, of the South, who were part of the Democratic coalition. So there were senators who were perfect progressives, prepared to vote for his labor reforms, um, for his regulatory reforms. Um, but the understanding was that he would not challenge um, the, uh, the segregationist, uh, the apartheid system that prevailed in the American Deep South. And a tough historian would say there was not much in the New Deal for America's blacks. Yeah. And uh, his wife, his heroic wife, would lobby him about the epidemic of lynching yeah. taking place in America, uh, in the American South. But there are limits on what he could do. Mm. Um, he appointed one Supreme Court judge senator, uh, Black from Alabama. Uh, it's a very funny story. Uh, Black knew that after his swift appointment, it got through the Senate very quickly, um, stories would break about his membership in the KKK in the right. 1920s. Black took himself and his wife on a cruise to Europe. And in those days, you're out of contact. Hmm. Um, you could make yourself out of contact. When the stories broke, he knew that Roosevelt's instinct would be to call on him to withdraw his name, to resign. And he didn't want to be accessible with the president's charm when that <laughs> mounted. So from Paris, he was able to separate himself from the political panic in Washington. Uh, Black went on to be someone who consistently voted for desegregation. Yeah. On the bench, I think he was there in the 50s to 
um, when, when unanimously the court made its historic ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, but that's a long-winded way of highlighting that, that Roosevelt saw Southern senators like Black as part of his political coalition. Mm. Um, and the South was there along with, along with the industrial unions of the North and the big city machines and uh, progressive senators from the Prairie and the Rocky Mountain states. Yeah, I guess you've got to work with people as part of it. Like you realise you needed to include them within the coalition, better to do so than leave them without. At a, at a big price, though. The, at a big the price. To, to us today would taint his progressivism. Yeah, yeah. There's another thing, another theme coming out of the McGregor biography is this idea of, of executive overreach. Do you think there are genuine criticisms to be made of FDR on this point. I mean, they could also be made of Lincoln, as you mentioned before, Habeas Corpus, but in FDR's case, you know, court stacking um, also maybe influencing Congress too much. What do you think about those criticisms? Well, his biggest political mistake was, um, we're talking about domestic politics, yeah. was the attack back the court yeah. after he was re-elected with a huge margin in 1936. And he faced, he faced even from those uh, deep, democratic majorities resistance to such a radical move. The attachment in the Congress to the separation of powers was, um, was so real. Mm. Um, and uh, um, to the tradition of a, a Supreme Court that couldn't be suborned by a power-hungry president, he lost public opinion. On that, he lost the support of his own party and of large parts of the uh, uh, the Rooseveltian coalition. Um, it achieved the objective, I suppose you'd say, that the Supreme Court was less resistant to uh, New Deal measures. They stopped bowling, declaring constitutionally invalid uh, law after law. Some of the laws, <coughs> though, yeah, it did stretch um, court tolerance. Mm. Um, some of the regulatory measures from the corporate state phase of the New Deal um, really were absurd, Try, trying to regulate the number of chickens that could be um, in a cage. I mean, that became the basis of, of one challenge. It was designed, a lot, of the, a lot of the measures were designed to restrict competition. Yes. Because competition was seen as... <coughs> damaging, damaging to jobs and to small business. Yes. As a final question then, Professor, I, uh, I'm conscious of time, but, you know, you're also Australia's previous foreign minister. Um, we're living in a world now where there's this challenge to the American consensus from within, really, hyper-liberal hyper elements on the left in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, which right now I think is in such a state of de-definition that, you know, one could even hesitate to call it a party at all. Um, but we're living in this world where we're, some people are talking of the, of the decline of America, the rise of China, and we've got something right now, a crisis bordering in Ukraine, um, in Europe. What is the status and role that Australia as this creative middle power has to play in face of these challenges? How do you think we should be representing ourselves in the world? Um, what is your thought on that? 
Well, well, right now we've opted to have one international personality, which is to be the closest to America of any of America's allies or partners. That's the way Canberra, Canberra very seriously and calculatedly has defined our international personality. So there's a whole there's a whole body of public service opinion um, uh, that has taken taken charge of this. That's where they want us to be. Well, um, that comes at a price. It means we've got one personality in, for example, Southeast Asia. Um, it means that we we wear our antagonism towards China as a as a badge of honor. Um, <coughs> and um, that reduces opportunities for us. Um, but nonetheless, that's the position we've reached. We haven't even got the gumption. We haven't even got the gumption to take up the case of Julian Assange with the Americans and say at the end of a, a meeting with the Secretary of State to say um, um, he's an Australian citizen, uh, can you quietly drop the extradition proceedings? Mm. Um, so that's where, that's where we've positioned ourselves to the point where I don't think we can be seen as a creative middle power because we're not, we haven't got the independence or the energy mm. to champion any approach um, in the world that might be a bit independent the way we were able to do with um, the arms trade treaty during my my time um, or the Canberra Commission on Nuclear Weapons under the Keating Prime Ministership mm. uh, or the, 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 the Cambodian Accords with Gareth Evans. Um, it's very hard to see Australia having any independent personality. And do you think, for example, on, a, on the question of Ukraine, what should Australia be doing regarding that situation as it emerges? Um, there's no suggestion that we'd make a military commitment. So it's different from a number of other situations in which we could find ourselves. Um, I'm thinking of war with Iran, for example, where Americans might make a demand for an Australian naval presence in the Gulf. <coughs> so it's easier for us in that sense. Um, given the, the European involvement, there's really no role for any creativity from Australia here. I think uh, making sort of statements we've been making, it's not an unreasonable position to be uh, carefully consulting our American ally mm. um, and our, our European partner. Assert um, that any, any attempt to settle by military force arguments about Ukrainian membership of NATO um, is, is wrong and should be responded to um, in the ways that the, uh, the Biden White House is, is signalling. Yes. And as, as a final, final question, um, 
You've written in Run for Your Life that your position on Australia-China relations is essentially Gough Whitlam's and that the credo which informed him um, is the one that informs you still. What is that credo? And, and do you think that there are ways that we need to renegotiate Whitlam's vision in the changing strategic context? Um, or is all the criticism that that's no longer possible unfounded? Yeah, Whitlam, Whitlam said, I, I see the relationship with China comparable to the relationship we have um, with other great powers. Um, and that should be non-contentious. That embraces a relationship where there are a range of differences, um, but opportunities for uh, diplomacy. Um, I, uh, a, a federal election campaign is not the best context mm. to have, have a discussion because the government has declared that um, full-bodied antagonism towards China is a way of rallying its, its base vote uh, during this campaign. Um, it's interesting that they've chosen to be so bold about it mm. um, and to uh, a different conservative government might have said, we're not going to, <clears throat> we're not going to get down into the mud and, and uh, take our opponents with treason because that would be bad for the country on a number of grounds. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Professor, we've, we've reached an hour. It's been a, a wonderful ranging conversation and we've been many places. <laughs> um, but, but thank you so much. It's, it's been a, a really wonderful opportunity and an honour for me to learn from you as a, as a reformer and as a thinker about history as well. Um, so I'm really grateful for your coming on and speaking with me. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. Let's, uh, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for mentioning uh, Run For Your Life um, because a great deal of that book is about about uh, approaches to reform. Absolutely. And uh, um, I, think that I, I, think, I think case studies like those I presented in the book are worth, are worth picking over. And we, uh, thanks for the opportunity of talking some of them through. And it's great to see the books on the... <laughs> Thank you, Professor. Much appreciated. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks,